Well, in the last decade, there has been an onslaught of new bake-off competitions on television. One of them in particular is called Nailed It. Have you heard of this show? Nailed It? Let me explain the premise. Three amateur bakers come together live in the studio. Each are given a kitchen station, and they attempt to recreate an edible masterpiece. In each round, they are given a professional finished product, and they battle it out in their attempt to recreate it. Their imitation projects are then judged. There's a $10,000 prize on the line, and the winner gets a nailed it trophy. It's part contest, part hot mess. I mean, some of the final entries are horrendous, hopeless, and pretty hilarious. But there's a lesson behind each episode, and there's a lesson behind each contestant that comes on the show. Here it is. The task before them is beyond their ability. It's beyond their skill. They know it and the judges know it. And yet, they put their best foot forward. They attempt to imitate something that is impossible for them to ultimately imitate. And their imitation is imperfect and leaves so much to be desired. But that doesn't stop them. It propels them forward in action. And there's a direct correlation, a direct connection between this lesson and our passage this morning. Today we're going to be continuing our summer series through the letter of Ephesians. And in Ephesians 1 through 3 of this letter, the Holy Spirit has told us through the hand of Paul who the church is in Christ. And this has included how the church has been saved, how the church has been made one new humanity, and what and who the church reveals, which is the wisdom of God before heaven and earth. Chapters one through three are filled with glorious, doctrine-saturated, Christ-exalting truth. And they lay a foundation. Those chapters lay a foundation for chapters four through six, where the Spirit tells us how the church ought to live in light of that truth. In chapter four, as we looked at over the course of the last couple of weeks, we saw that Paul moved us from doctrine to devotion. He's moved us from knowledge to practice. And he boldly exhorted the church, as we've seen these last two weeks here in this letter, he's boldly exhorted the church to walk in a worthy manner. And what does that look like? What does it look like? Well, we are to walk together eager to maintain unity. Eager to maintain unity. We are to walk together eager to grow in maturity in the church. We are to put off the old self and put on the new 
Christ himself, his righteousness, his holiness, as we walk together in a new, godly, and holy life. But the Spirit's just getting started through the hand of Paul. He's just getting started. So that brings us to our passage today, Ephesians chapter 5. Please turn there with me this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one from under a chair near you. You can find the letter on page 917. If you're not familiar with reading the Bible and it's new to you, the large numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. You'll be helped to keep this passage open this morning to this passage. Ephesians 5, 1 through 20. Please follow along as I read. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of life of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and forever to God the Father in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into our passage. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us from your word from heaven. Well, we know and trust that your word is living and active among us. And we ask that you would open our hearts, renew our minds, that your spirit would cause us to behold the glorious Jesus this morning. Strengthen your imperfect and weak servant now to proclaim your word faithfully and truthfully. May the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, who is our rock and our redeemer. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, to guide our time this morning, here's the main idea and outline. Here's something for you to write down in your notes. Here's the main idea and outline of Ephesians 5, 1 through 20. Imitate God as you walk in love, in light, 
and in spirit-filled life. Imitate God as you walk in love, verses 1 and 2. As you walk in light, verses 3 through 14. As you walk in spirit-filled life. See this in verses 15 through 20. All right, here we go. Point one. Imitate God as you walk in love, verses 1 and 2. Coincidentally, this is the shortest section, but I'm going to spend the longest time on this this morning. So this point will be my longest point. In verse 1, we read, therefore, be imitators. And when we see the word therefore, we should always ask, what is it therefore? Well, the Spirit is telling us to read these two verses in the following 18 in light of what has come before it. If you are indeed saved or regenerate, as Paul has described in chapter 2, and indeed converted, having put off the old and put on the new in Christ, as he described in the previous chapter, then imitate God in the way you live. With new life comes a new lifestyle. But we should, we should park here for a moment. How do we do the undoable? How... How in the world do we imitate the inimitable? This is a tall order. Really? Imitate God? How can we, who are finite and failing and fallible, imitate God? Well, tying back to the lesson from that silly TV show, ultimately we cannot. We can't do this perfectly, but according to this text, and really this whole letter, we can walk and strive and press on and imperfectly, imperfectly imitate God's love. Perfection is not required, pursuit is. Perfection is not required, pursuit is. And so we read at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2, look there with me. Imitate God as beloved children and walk in love. Now, Paul isn't talking down to the church here when he says children. We we should be careful. He's not talking down to Ephesians or Edgewoodians in a condescending way. No, this is endearing and familial language here. It's language that we actually see throughout the New Testament. In, In 1 John, this is exceptionally highlighted. In 1 John, the author repeatedly addresses believers then and now like this. He says, children, don't sin. Children, you know your father who is from the beginning. Children, keep yourself from idols. Children, you are from God. Abide in God. Practice righteousness. Love in deed and truth. The Spirit speaks to us in 1 John in familial language as children. In Romans 8 and Galatians 3, Paul himself calls, calls those who are in Christ and led by the Spirit, children of God. Those are just a, a few examples of so many. And similarly, following those examples here, this is the point Paul is making in our passage. Here's the point. How do children learn to walk? How do children learn to walk? By watching others, particularly their parents. As spiritual children, we learn to walk in love from God who is himself love. As children of God, we learn to walk from the pattern and life of Jesus. 
It's the perfect illustration for the Christian life. We imitate him, the one who is worthy of imitation. We learn to walk in love from our God of love. And I wonder what you think about and how you define love this morning. The Spirit is not speaking here of merely an earthly love, a feeling-based love, a self-seeking love, a, a sexual or lustful love, a broken love, tolerant, anything goes, love, a cultural love. The Spirit is not holding the banner that declares love is love, but instead he is holding here the banner that says God's love is love. And in a world confused about the nature of love, the Spirit is calling us to true, biblical, counter-cultural love. Let's not confuse God's love with a tainted love that is earthly. For brothers and sisters, God is love. He himself is love, and his love is patient, kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. God's love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. His love never ends. And we are to imitate this kind of love. Well, in our verses, how is God's love defined and displayed? How is it defined and displayed? Well, through a substitute and a sacrifice. This is a substituting and sacrificial love. This is what we see in verse 2 of, the chap of chapter 5. At the heart of God's love is sacrifice. And sacrifice is central to God's storyline of redemption that we see here in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, here in this book, going all the way back to Genesis. We see the start of a bloody sacrificial system. And that system is a picture of worship between God and man. Under the old covenant, God's people on the Day of Atonement, maybe you've heard of that day within the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, the priest would take two animals, a lamb and a scapegoat. On that day, the priest would sacrifice the lamb on the altar for the sins of the people. But then that same priest would lay hands on a scapegoat. He would, he would visually transfer the sins of the people onto the scapegoat and then send the scapegoat out into the wilderness. It would be sent out to the outer darkness away from any proximity to the presence of God and to the presence of God's people. Sin had to be dealt with. And God provided the means and the system for sin to be dealt with. And it was bloody. And it was grotesque. But why blood? Why, why sacrifice? Why such an obscene system in the eyes of this world? Well, because God takes worship seriously. He takes worship seriously, and he also takes our sin seriously, and the wages of sin is death, the very reason that sacrifice is necessary and was necessary. 
And so we needed a worthy substitute. We needed a worthy sacrifice. In light of the Old Testament, we needed a worthy substitute and a worthy sacrifice. And God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Christ came, lived a perfect and sinless life, and then was crucified on a cross for imperfect, unloving, and sinful people. On the cross, he that knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He lived and died as our scapegoat, our substitute, our sacrifice. He died as a fragrant offering, as it says here. Once and for all, oh, brothers and sisters, on the cross, the sin of the world was laid upon the Christ. The dark sins of verses three through six that we're gonna look at in just a moment, the darkness of sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and filthiness and foolish and crude talk and joking, the sin of idolatry and adultery, all of these and more, all the sins of the world were laid upon the Christ on the cross. And after he died under the weight of your sin and my sin and drank the full cup of God's wrath against it, he was resurrected three days later. Sin was put to death in the resurrection of Christ. Death itself was put to death in the death and resurrection of Christ for those who believe. Because of Jesus, sin and death don't have the final word. The living Christ does. And it is a word of sacrificial love for unlovely people. This is the truth of God's love displayed in the gospel. So if you're not a Christian, then hear the summons of God's love to you this morning. Right here in just these two verses. If you have questions about this, this, this work of Jesus as a, a sacrifice, a substitute on our behalf, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love nothing more than to talk to you about love and light and life found in God through Christ today. Don't wait. Don't wait to do this. But church... Christians. We can only imitate God's love and walk in it. We can only do the work of love upon the finished work of love displayed in the work of Christ alone. We do the dues of the Christian life upon what has been done. Now we have to remember here that Paul is writing to the church. He is writing to local churches here. So bringing it down to the pavement of our lives, bringing it down to the pavement of our lives, what does sacrificial gospel love look like in the day-to-day? -day? How does our love separate us from the love of the world? How does the love of God reverberate through the life of this church? Please allow me to encourage you in two ways, just two ways. Of many. There's so many. We could spend the rest of the year just looking at ways that this passage can be applied in our life. But here are two ways. Sacrifice time and resources. 
There is the sacrifice of time and resources. Time is a non-renewable resource. We don't get it back. Our days are numbered. So how do you use yours? How do you use them? Our clocks and calendars reflect most what we love. So consider your calendar. Is there maybe one or two evenings a month? Maybe just start with one. Or you can have another family over from the church. Not someone that you play games with or someone you already know within the church, but someone who's new. Someone, someone you haven't actually met and talked to yet. How can you sacrifice time and resources of a job, home, money that the Lord has given you in a way that shows love to the church? Consider the ways. Second, there's the sacrifice of preference. The sacrifice of preference. A very common statement in my household is prefer one another. Two young daughters constantly saying and telling myself, prefer others, prefer one another. The reason it's so common and it comes up in our home all, all the time is because it's hard to die to self. It's hard to show preference to another. It's a hard sacrifice. You have to give up your own desires, your wants, your ideas for the benefit of someone else, someone you live in close contact with every day. So consider the ways, not just in the home, but also in the church and in all of life. Consider the ways that you can prefer others or maybe consider the ways that you don't currently prefer others. Preferring others is a picture of the gospel. Christ preferred the needs of his people, preferred his people by coming, exchanging a robe of splendor for a robe of frail humanity to come and live in the brothel of this world. What, a, what an amazing testimony of love. What an amazing testimony of grace. What an amazing picture of what it is to prefer others. May we follow suit imperfectly, but may we follow suit with the Lord's help. Beloved, Christian love is shaped like the cross. It involves sacrifice necessarily. The person of Christ himself embodies sacrifice and he offers us the pattern of sacrifice. So how are you becoming more like him and sacrificing? May we imitate him as we walk in sacrificial love with the help of Jesus. And second, may we imitate him as we walk in light. That brings us to point two. Imitate God as you walk in light. Look with me there at verses three through five once again. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's fascinating and very telling that right after the Lord speaks of God's love, the Spirit speaks of God's love through the hand of Paul, he immediately, immediately speaks of sexual immorality. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. I don't think so. 
he immediately addresses sexual immorality, which is so often infused with the world's understanding of love. And this shouldn't be, this shouldn't be lost on us here. That word immorality is the word porneia in the Greek. It's where we actually get the word pornography. And Paul's making it clear, sexual immorality of any kind, impurity in thought or action of any kind, covetousness, anything that belongs to a neighbor that is an idol of yours, of any kind, these are not to be among God's people. These aren't even to be named among God's people. There's a reason these sins are listed twice in these verses here in our passage. I don't know if you noticed that. These are not to characterize our life or our lives together. Additionally, we see that there is to be no filthy or foolish or crude talk or joking. These are out of place, as it says in verse 4. They are out of place among God's people who are to walk with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving in a worthy manner and newness of life. Church, adultery and idolatry of any kind are contrary to God's way. They are part and parcel of the old self, the old life, the old manner of living that we put off and put away with the Lord's help by the work of the Spirit and one another. These sins listed here are weapons of mass destruction within the church and within our world. And they bring darkness and devastation and death. Idols of any kind. This passage can be summed up. It's just a variety of idols. Idols build us up just to watch us Humpty Dumpty. Put us up on the wall to watch us fall. Idols are the Satan's devices that bring shipwreck to faith. And they bring darkness and devastation and death. And as it says in verse 5, we can be sure that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So let's make no mistake. These are heavy words. These are heavy, heavy words. So let's make no mistake. If these mark the life of a person, if they are the identity of a person, then that is a sure sign that they are not in Christ, that they are not new, that the Spirit is not in them, that they are deceived by the empty words of the world, that they are the sons and daughters of disobedience marked by God's wrath, as it says in verses 6 through 7. But Christians, if one has put on Christ and is actively putting these things away in ongoing repentance and faith, with the Spirit's help, then these are no longer, then you are no longer in partnership with the world, but you are in union, in partnership with Christ and his people. Amen? Amen. And there it says in verse 8, we who profess Christ and live in ongoing repentance and faith walk in the light and are no longer walking in darkness. I recently used this illustration uh, at a men's breakfast that we had here, um, but it bears repeating. We all love a good game of hide-and-seek, right? Especially as kids, or maybe as an adult with kids, or maybe you play hide-and-seek as adults. I don't <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. Someone, you know, let me, let me explain just briefly again. 
Someone counts to 25, 50, or 100, and they find a place, you know, everyone else in the room finds a place to hide, preferably in the darkest place of the house, back corner, hamper over the head, clothes in front of us. If we're really daring, we'll hide in the dryer. If we're even more daring, we'll get up in the attic where the insulation and the mouse traps are. I never did that. We love a good game of hide and seek as kids, adults, or adults with kids. But I want to argue that we never quite get over the game of hide and seek in our lives spiritually. It's not a perfect one-to-one correlation, but we take the essence of the game into our lives. We take the essence of the game into our lives, and we come by this naturally. We see this in Genesis 3. You don't have to turn there, but God has just created all things, and he created man and woman, and they were good. Very good. But then we see a transition that happens in Genesis 3, 1 through 10. Adam and Eve rebel against God, and sin enters the world. And what is the first thing that Adam and Eve do? First thing. First thing after they notice that they're physically and spiritually naked. What's the first thing that they do? They hide. They isolate. First thing. They go away from the light and they go into the darkness. They begin to play hide and seek with God and with one another. And we have a natural tendency to do the same. We have the natural tendency to do the same. But if we fast forward, and now if we fast forward in our, in our Bibles from Genesis to our passage today, we read, the Spirit is clear that if we are in Christ, if we are in the light, then we are necessarily pushing away that game of hide and seek. We are pushing away the darkness and walking as children of light, as it says in verse 8. You know, Ephesus was a dark place. Edgewood is also a dark place. Ephesus needed the light of Christ and his gospel. Edgewood needs the light of Christ and his gospel. Ephesus needed the light of a local church. Edgewood needs the light of a local church. And how we live in and out the light together as a church is what Paul is concerned with here. Sometimes we, we think about this in light of, okay, well, we need, to, we need to be lights to those out there. But it starts in here. We're to be lights to and with one another. So how do we push away the darkness and live counterculturally in the light as a church? How do we do this? Well, we have six here. We have six, I have six for you for you to consider of many. And they're, they're either implied or they lift straight out of the text here. First, we gather for worship to delight in the light of God's word and gospel together. The gathered church is a community of light that is made up of children of light. And that light is a beacon of hope in a dark place. Second, we walk together not in isolation, but we walk together in discipleship. This requires us to know and engage one another outside of our lane that we walk in in the church. Third, we are to be known, as it says in verse 9, by the good, right, and true fruit of light in our lives. In other words, if we are in the light, then our lives, words, and posture will reflect the light. Fourth, 
in verse 10, an evidence that we are walking in the light is that we try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Where do we learn these things? Where do we learn what is pleasing to the Lord? Right here. Right here in this book. In God's word, there's a reason it's called a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So we need to be delighting in the light of God's word and applying it daily. Fifth, we, verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but we expose them. This means that where we see darkness, we are not to join in. We are not to join in in the shameful things, but we are to shine the life and love and light of Christ upon it. That starts in the church with the way that we live together and then works out from there. Verse 11 also implies that we are to be present lights in the world, in our homes, families, workplaces, schools, and neighborhoods. We are to pursue the world, looking for ways to expose the world to the love and light of Christ. In the context of Ephesus, the city and culture was known for its darkness, debauchery, and depravity. Our region is really no different. Nothing new under the sun. So may we be a light to those in darkness around us, exposing them to a new and countercultural life together. We are to be this kind of light together. It is not our responsibility to change the world. The culture war is not our war. But we are responsible to shine the light of Christ in a dark place, to be a city on a hill, to live as a compelling and countercultural community before a watching world. That is our responsibility. And we should be asking the Lord to give us opportunities to proclaim the light so that many more would join us in a better way, a better life, and a better hope in Christ. Sixth, we see in verses 13 through 14, Paul doubles down here. We are to bring visibility and light to one another. Darkness hides the ugly realities of evil, doesn't it? Christians are to bring those realities into the light and make them visible, not only individually, but corporately in our life together. Now, this does not mean that we go head hunting. This also doesn't mean that we go like sin Easter egg hunting in one another's lives. But it does mean that where we see sin, we expose it. We expose the darkness among us for anything that becomes visible is light. And the light of God always transforms the darkness. Always. The love of God always transforms the darkness. And beloved, here's the point of this section. The light of God, the light of Christ changes everything. It changes everything in our lives individually and our life together. It changes everything. And we are to imitate God as we walk in light. Well, one commentator says, verse 14, concluding this section, is a natural conclusion. Paul clenches his argument with an apt quotation from Isaiah 60, verse 1, from the passage that we read earlier there in the call to worship at the beginning of our service. Here, Paul picks up the words from Isaiah 60 and writes them with a Christ-centered focus. Did you notice how the passage in Isaiah 60 is a little different than what Paul wrote here. There's a reason for that. Paul is reading the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. He's reading Isaiah 60 in light of what Christ has done in the New Covenant. Paul's teaching us how to read our Bibles right here. And he writes 
awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is our lyric. This is our song. And this is a call to those who believe and a call to those who do not believe. Outside of the light of Christ, in Adam, we are all asleep, dead, and in darkness. But God, in Christ, by his word and spirit, rescued his people, have rescued us through his word and the gospel of his son. We are awakened from our sleep. We are raised from death to new life, and we are called to imitate him as we walk in the light. Together as a body, we are to walk in the illuminating and radiating light of Christ. This is an impossible task apart from the Spirit. This is an impossible task apart from the Holy Spirit. So may we seek his help. May we imitate God as we walk in love and light, as we read here and in spirit-filled life. That brings us to point three. Imitate God as you walk in spirit-filled life. Let me read these verses once again. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where the love of God is and the light of God is, there the Spirit of God is. Where the Love of God is and the light of God is there the spirit of God is. And this is made abundantly clear in verse 18. The church scattered or gathered like we are this morning is to be filled with the spirit. In the context of this chapter, Paul is saying, because you're children of light and darkness is not among you, then verse 15, look carefully then how you walk in the light. Look carefully how you walk This is very reminiscent of Paul's exhortation to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, where he says, watch your doctrine, watch your life. Those two go hand in hand. And if we have been given life by grace and we have put off the old self and put on the new in conversion, then the Holy Spirit dwells in us and shapes our lives. So what does a spirit-filled life and a spirit-filled community look like? What differentiates it and fills it and marks it? Well, spirit-filled life and community, according to these verses, according to the Holy Spirit, here it is. We're wise and not unwise. We're discerning and not foolish. We're spirit-filled and not drunk. We're song-filled, not song-less. And we are thankful, not thankless. First, we see in verses 15 and 16, we see that the spirit-filled church, a spirit-filled Christian, is wise and not unwise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom starts when we recognize who God is and who we are in light of who he is. That's where it begins. And we who are informs who we are 
I should say, who we are informs what we do. And the Spirit says here that the days are evil, so make the best use of your time. In other words, be wise with your time. How we use our time indicates if we are wise or not. Have you considered that? How we use our time indicates whether we are truly wise or not. Again, time is a non-renewable resource. We don't get it back. So whether you are young, younger or older, consider what you do with your days. Each day is a gift. You've heard the phrase. Each day is a gift. Are you using it wisely? Are you using them wisely? A spirit-filled life and community is wise with its time. It's also, verse 17, discerning and not foolish. It has been said that how do you know the will of the Lord for your life? How do you know where the Lord wants you? Because you're there. Because you're there. The will of the Lord plays out differently in all of our lives, including our life together. But the discerning pray as Jesus prayed. Not my will be done, but yours. Not my will, but yours be done. The foolish person lives without regard for God's will in his or her life. But the discerning person seeks God's will in prayer, seeks God's will in his word, and seeks God's will in wise counsel. And this is key. Trying to understand God's will is on a license for passivity or decision paralysis. It requires a humble pursuit of a desired destination. And it requires the humble pursuit of wise counsel. Along the journey, a spirit-filled life and community is discerning. It is also, verse 18, spirit-filled and not drunk. Spirit-filled and not drunk. Paul does an interesting wordplay here. He says that we are to be filled with the spirit and not filled with wine. In other words, we are not to be spiritually inebriated. We are not to be spiritually inebriated. We are to be sober-minded in the spirit. That's what we are to be. We are to exercise self-control in all areas of life with food, drink, pursuits, thoughts, actions. Brothers and sisters, a spirit-filled life is a self-controlled and Christ-controlled life. See, spirit-controlled and Christ-controlled life. And it's one that is also, verse 19, song-filled and not song-less. Those who are filled with the Spirit are filled with the melody of grace. The melody of God's grace. They're to be filled with song. Isn't music wonderful? It's a gift from the Lord. Music is a gift from the Lord. And there is a beautiful corporate application here to our church. Corporate, corporate words to our church. Here it is. There, there's no imperative in, in the New Testament regarding musical worship. Nothing about instrumentation. There's no imperative in the New Testament about music, about musical worship. But there is one, except for this right here. We are to sing together. We are to sing together. As we have this morning, we are to sing congregationally from the heart. And therefore, what we sing matters. 
The words we sing, that's why we put the lyrics up on the slides, the words we sing matter. How we sing those words, the posture of our heart also matters as we sing to and with one another. This is why we attempt to sing songs here at EBC that are singable for all people, younger or older. And make no mistake, we display our corporate, spirit-filled life together when we sing together. This is why we have the lights up. I don't know if you noticed, while we sang together, this is why we have the lights up and not the lights down. This is why we have the instrumentation at a volume that allows congregational singing to be elevated above the music. It's why we do what we do here every Sunday. We keep the lights on, we keep the music in some ways, the instrumentation down, so that we can sing together and hear ourselves sing together. That's why we do what we do. We are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with our hearts together. It's wonderful. A spirit-filled life and community is one that sings together. And it's also, verse 20, lastly, thankful and not thankless. We are to live and sing together with thankfulness and not thanklessness. The Spirit speaks here. And the, the Word really makes itself clear, doesn't it? We are to give thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. May gratitude mark our lives, our prayers, our conversations, our schedules, our families, and our gatherings. We are to be known by our thankfulness to God for not just some things, but for everything. Everything. So pulling it all together, do these characteristics mark your life? Do they mark our life together? Maybe over lunch you can consider the ways that these mark or don't mark our church family. But let's not, let's not make any mistake here that where we are unwise, let's seek wisdom from the Spirit-breathed word and wise counsel. Where we are foolish, let's seek God's will and humble prayer with a discerning heart. Where we are spiritually or physically inebriated, let us speak spirit-filled words. Let's be spirit-filled, self-controlled, and Christ-controlled in how we live and speak with one another. Where we are songless, let's be song-filled and sing together often from the heart. Where we are thankless, let's seek to be thankful always in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ. Well, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's imitate God as we walk in love, in light, and in Spirit-filled life together. Well, we should close. How do we do the undoable? How do we imitate the inimitable? Well, we can't perfectly. We can't. But God has given us himself and the work of his son, and he has given us his spirit to enable us. Can it get any better than that? No, it can't get any better than that. There is nothing more powerful in the universe than the word of God, the gospel of God, and the spirit of God at work in the life of his people. 
There is nothing greater nor more powerful than that. So let's imperfectly pursue being imitators of God by God's pure grace until we see the destined day arise and the return of Christ. And on that day, brothers and sisters, it will be beautiful because we will be filled with and standing in the presence of God's love, light, and life forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for your word made flesh that brings love and light and life to to us. Lord, we thank you for this work. We thank you that you have called your people out of darkness into light. You have called an unlovely people and have lavished your love upon them. And Lord, that you have given life to the spiritually dead. We give you praise and honor and glory for all the things you have done, are doing, and will do in our life together. And we do pray as your word instructs, Lord, come quickly. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.